Can anybody read that from where you're at? See what that says? Knots. Yeah, the K is silent. This is a... a this, I love this book. I got it years ago, and um, it, it's a, it just gives some really great pictures on tying knots, like step-by-step process of tying knots and all kinds of super cool knots. A lot of super cool knots that are totally impractical for anything that I could possibly do with them. Uh, a lot of knots that, you know, I'd like to have a use for them, but I don't. Um, a lot of knots that I probably should master because they would come in really handy. Um, and I've, I've spent uh, some free time just with a, you know, cord or rope or something trying to experiment with some of these. Um, this book, I mean, it gives all, all kinds of knots. Um, from, from on the nautical side to things you can use in the woods, um, fishing, fishing. Uh, We've got the fisherman's knot, double fisherman's knot, the blood knot, the water knot, clinch knot, palomar. I mean, some, some cool knots in here. Um, it doesn't tell you all the knots, but it tells you quite a few. And it'll give you a little blurb about maybe the use of them. Um, but for as many knots that are in here that related, are related to fishing, it doesn't tell you how to fish. Um, it doesn't even really tell you when to use those knots. It just tells you how to tie them. So it touches on fishing. But if you want to know how to fish, you don't go to this book. It might be useful to you if you're learning how to fish. Uh, but this book doesn't teach you how to fish. It just teaches you a little information that might touch on fishing. Well, when we go to God's Word, what we want to do is make sure that we're reading Scripture in its context. There are passages that will touch on things, but aren't there to give us a full explanation of the topic or to go in-depth on a particular topic. It just kind of mentions it because of the context. And our passage today has often been one that has been wrestled with over the years and will probably continue to be wrestled with uh, over the year, through the years to come, um, in Hebrews chapter six, and the discussion usually centers around the idea of what we call eternal security, and the idea is: Can someone who has placed their faith in Christ, has who has been born again through the sacrifice of Christ and become a child of God, be removed from the family of God? to have their gift of salvation taken from them. Um, and that is oftentimes where the discussion will go in Hebrews chapter 6. Um, and it's an interesting discussion to have, to which I have heard uh, many well-respected, godly, uh, very Bible knowledge and understanding folk who have taken a slightly different perspective on this. And what I want to do here with our passage today is to, to read our, as we read our passage, I want to do the best that we can at making sure we keep it in its context. So Hebrews chapter 6 happens to follow Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, right? So Hebrews 6 doesn't just, it's not just like someone grabbed this, stuck it in there from somewhere else. The Holy Spirit is building in Hebrews 6 on the foundation that's been laid from Hebrews 1 through 5. So we're going we're gonna to take a, a look here, uh, do a, a real quick recap of kind of things that we've gleaned from Hebrews 1 through 5, so that as we begin our text in Hebrews 6, we're building it upon Hebrews 1 through 5. Because I don't believe that this passage, while it may touch on it for us, I don't believe that this passage is concerned about eternal security. I believe that there is a message here that is, is not focused on eternal security, but on something uh, slightly different. And so we're going to look at that and try to make sure that we're dealing with it in its context. The other thing that we need to do 
So we have a, the context of Hebrews 6 set within the larger work of Hebrews. And then we have Hebrews itself being set in the context of Scripture. So that the whole of Scripture is one voice that speaks to us in a unified way. So something in Hebrews and something in uh, Exodus and something in Revelation and something in the book of John are going to be in agreement. It may come at it from different points of view, but they're going to be in agreement because God's word is in agreement with itself. Uh, God, is, God is, uh, does not talk out both sides of his mouth. He, he, um, he speaks what is true because he himself is truth. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, and uh, I'd like to just ask the Lord to direct our steps as we do. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. It's a treasure for us by which you reveal yourself to us, that you illuminate uh, the path before us, both uh, the path of salvation and eternal life and the path for us to walk in for us to be in fellowship with you, to, for us as children of God to know you as our Heavenly Father, to celebrate our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to walk in the power and in unity with the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would impart to us your truth and give us understanding. Um, Lord, that you would draw us deeper into fellowship with you, that you would cause uh, our understanding of your word to grow here today um, that as you lead us um, by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so quick kind of recap of, of where we've been and what has been the themes of, of Hebrews. So there are two main themes of Hebrews, one that, that, that overshadows the other. The first one that that is the largest theme of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. He is superior as it relates to all the messengers that God has sent. He is superior above the angels, above Moses, above the law. Um, He is superior um, when it comes to the the line of priests. In fact, the um, Hebrews proclaims to us that Jesus isn't just a better Levitical priest, that is the Levitical priesthood, um, as we would discover it in uh, the the, uh, uh, early part of the Old Testament, um, that Jesus isn't just like a better kind of a priest. He is a different kind of priest from a different order, a different priesthood. And, and he himself is, is superior and comes from a superior priesthood. Now, the language can kind of get lost on us, but the point is that uh, the priest's job, obviously, was to represent uh, the people before God and to, to, um, uh, to perform sacrifices for the people, for them to be acceptable to God and to remain in fellowship with God. Um, and the priests um, could never do that fully. Um, their job was never done, but Jesus Christ, when he came, he gave a sacrifice of himself, which was in, in one sacrifice was sufficient for all the sins of humanity, and, and now sits at the right hand of the Father where his righteousness is being applied to us to make us acceptable to the Father. And so he is our high priest as he represents us before the Father and imparts his righteousness to us through his sacrifice and our faith in him. Now, so that is the overarching, uh, uh, the, the real main thrust of what's going on in Hebrews. But underneath that, built upon that, is a sort of so then, um, or therefore, there's, there's several therefores in Hebrews, um, and so there's this call because of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us and that, that his, his promises are sure and that his sacrifice is complete and perfect and uh, sufficient for us all, that, that we are now to live as believers and um, we are called to persevere in our trust in him, to walk by faith in him and to not quit. 
but to persevere in trusting him throughout all the twists and turns and difficulties and sufferings that this world will bring our way. And so there's a, the application point for Hebrews is largely that's built upon who Jesus is and what he's done. The application, major application for Hebrews is persevere to the end. And um, so that is kind of what's going on in Hebrews. And then we have scattered throughout several warnings, especially here in the first few chapters. The warning is, um, is, is a, it actually goes back, um, Hebrews is written to a predominantly Jewish audience who have been familiar with uh, the stories passed down through generations about what God has done. Uh, and, the, and the history of their people, um, and would have had a good understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, which at that time were the only scriptures. And, um, and so, having come from that perspective, a Jewish understanding, um, what Hebrews does is present uh, many Old Testament things, and then show them now in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ. How those, how those things back in the, in the script, Old Testament scriptures actually pointed forward to the coming of Jesus and how Jesus is the greater fulfillment of those things. So that when, uh, when Hebrews talks about God rescuing his people out of Egypt and leading them to the promised land, that this, this is pointing forward to God saving sinners from sin and death and judgment through the sacrifice of Christ and leading us to our eternal inheritance um, with God as his children. And so the promised land of, of, of uh, Scripture, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, is a foreshadowing of heaven. And God's people, Israel, um, working towards entering the promised land, are we would compare to uh, believers here moving towards that day where we realize in full the gift that God has for us. Though we taste of it now, we'll realize it in full um, when we pass from this life. And so uh, in through here then, it, as it discusses uh, the generation of Moses. And what, what that generation was like. And it compares this call for believers now in Hebrews to persevere. Don't lose heart. Uh, don't, don't allow yourself to be lured away by temptation to sin into a place where you fall away from, from trusting God. As did the generation of Moses. That's the big comparison up to this point. That that generation is looked at from Hebrews, the perspective of Hebrews as being faithless. And, and not just in a passive sense, but in a, in a real fist to God sort of way where they held him in contempt. Though he had saved them from Egypt in miraculous ways and shown his judgment against Egypt for what it had done to his people... Uh, you know, rescued them through the Red Sea, and, and then through the desert provided them water um, from, from strange places when they were thirsty, and food that fell from the sky, and all kinds of miraculous things where God proved his power and proved his faithfulness over and over and over, and then gave them a visible, a, a tangible view of his presence through the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that would lead them, and still they hated him in their hearts. And because of that, the Bible calls that unbelief, but we, we, we shouldn't un- mix that up with the type of unbelief that is just this passive, well, I don't believe there's a God, but rather an unbelief that says, yeah, that even would go so far as to say, yeah, I know he exists, I just hate him. So, when, so that's the comparison in here is then this, this call for believers, this warning that keeps cropping up in Hebrews, don't be like that generation. Don't fall into that. Don't allow yourself to be swayed by the enemy into luring, lured into temptation that where you 
begin to bring on a heart, uh, take on a heart like that faithless generation that held God in contempt. So we have warnings like in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Because that generation, they didn't. Um, Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And specifically in chapter 3, that is right on the heels of talking about that faithless generation that that, uh, rebelled against God in their heart and hated Him. In fact, it says it references Psalm 95 and it says... Uh, um, that they hardened their hearts towards God. Um, Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Um, And so there's this warning to take care, to be on alert um, that we do not become like them. And then chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What same sort of disobedience? The same sort of disobedience that Moses' generation fell into where they did not believe in God. Uh, Not that he didn't exist, but that they refused to be his people in their heart. Now, we look back with hindsight and think, you know, when we went through the book of Exodus and we saw God's miraculous and powerful intervention in the life of Israel, we look back on that and we go, how can anybody not walk in the fear of the Lord and with a love for him for all that he's done for them and in such a a blatant, obvious, in-their-face sort of way where he exhibited his power and his love for them and his mercy and his faithfulness. But yet, even we can do that very same thing. Even, even, Even being confronted with with God's grace and God's mercy and God's love around us, we can still become hard-hearted towards Him. We are sinners by nature. And the one thing about sin is it hates light. It hates to be exposed. And there are two responses that this provokes in us. One, repentance whereby we allow our sin to be exposed and we seek to be rid of it by turning to Christ for forgiveness of sin. Or we harden our hearts against Him and try to close that off from Him and continue to be determined to live in the way that we choose to live. One softens our heart and God heals and redeems the other one, hardens our heart, and even sets us further uh, against him. And so there are these warnings throughout Hebrews, and I would say that even the end of chapter 5 is a warning of sorts. Um, when in verse 14 it says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The warning being, don't be... Uh, don't be among those who have not uh, developed a, a discernment between good and evil, lest you be drawn away like that faithless generation. And so, as we get to chapter 6, that's what's going on up till now. And so, chapter 6 is built upon that. So, let's look now at chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, 
and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now this is not like some, uh, uh, verse 3 there is not some uh, uh, cute little Christian, Christian phrase uh, where we go, well, if God allows it. But this is really, truly, that, that any understanding that we're going to arrive of, of the deeper things of God and a more mature uh, understanding of the things of God is going to come because God allows us to, 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 to grow in that way by his help. Verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We see that in the last couple of verses there, we see that theme keep coming up over and over and over again through Hebrews. Um, This this call to persevere in our hope in Christ, in our faith in Christ, and a warning to not become sluggish, not become uh, um, uh, dull, um, to, to stay sharp and stay um, active in pursuing him. So let's double back to the beginning there. You guys know the drill. When, a, when something starts off with therefore, what's the therefore there for? Yeah, that just helps us. Um, it's a good, good I mean, no, it's just a catchy little thing, but it kind of helps us remember to stop for a second. And go, wait, this is building on something else. What is it building on? Well, what came right before it is um, the, the, uh, uh, what's being said here is that there's more to be said about this idea of Jesus being our great high priest, especially as he drops the name Melchizedek in the order of Melchizedek. And then he just says, there's more to say about this. But... Um, but the problem is that you guys have, have kind of held on to a, a more immature understanding of Scripture. That is that, that you've been uh, content to just kind of um, uh, really stay where you're at in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word and the things of God instead of really seeking to grow in that and, and grasp a greater understanding of who God is and all that He's doing. And there's this call then to grow to maturity in our understanding of, of who God is and what He's doing in the Word of God. And, um, and so there's, there's this, uh, we need to go on to maturity in our understanding of, of God's Word and the things of God. And, um, and so there's this therefore now that's going to say, so here's, a, here's an application for us. So because, because it's important for us to go on to maturity and because um, uh, we want to gain a greater understanding of Jesus as our high priest, we're, we're going to have to now uh, make the turn and go on to some things that, that build upon the foundations that they had already received. Rather than continuing, continuing to go back and go over those foundational teachings again and again and again, um, we're going to build upon that. So therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, we're not going to go into those things either. Why? Because 
the Holy Spirit here in Hebrews actually says, we're not going to go into those things right now. Right? <laughs> That's specifically what is being said here. Let us leave the, uh, the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, when it says leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, it is not saying, okay, you've heard the gospel. You can forget about that now. You're good. We're, we're going on to something else and leaving that totally behind. No. Rather, what that is, what that is referring to here, it's a, it's a going on uh, to more. Um, it's not a leaving behind as in you're ditching it, but rather the foundation has been laid. Let's build higher. Let's go deeper. So it's not a setting aside in the sense of forgetting it. Um, it is a going on further into it, really. And so he's saying, we're not going to discuss that now. We're going to go on to other things here, and which is uh, verse 3 says, and this we will do if God permits. And so the... Um, uh, those ele- the word elementary there is referring then to those, those first teaching, the foundational teachings that they received about Christ, about salvation, about, about uh, dead works and the need for repentance and to be brought to salvation through Christ and forgiveness of sins and eternal life and living the life that God has called us to. Um, we're going to build on top of that. So then these... Um, when it says here, uh, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now we're going to come back to that impo- impossible word there in a little bit. But we need to answer some questions. So it refers to those who have once been enlightened. Now this is where we start getting into some uh, uh, folks disagreeing about what is actually being said here. Um, are those who have been enlightened those who have actually become believers in Christ? Or are those who have been enlightened, were they, um, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll tell you what I, uh, what I think this is teaching us. I will say this, there's enough mystery here that I'm not going to uh, drill down on this and set a very deep pillar on it, uh, on what I believe and get too dogmatic about it. Because I think there's a larger point that regardless of how we come at this, there's a, there's a point being made that we would all agree on here in, in the scriptures. So that's the point we're going we're gonna to work at mining. But, um, but I will tell you what I, what, what I have come to believe on this. And I will tell you that um, there are enough uh, uh, men who grasp these things much deeper and, and more completely than I who have disagreed on this that I don't feel a need to stake down too deeply on this particular issue. But um, we're going to get to um, more of that here. So who are those who have once been enlightened? Um, there are obviously some who will say that these are believers um, that Hebrews was written to believers, so this is speaking to believers. Um, what I think is going on here, and this is why I think context is so important, is the reference keeps being made back to the faithless generation of Moses. And what do we know about the faithless generation of Moses? Well, God, God saved them. They were the covenant people. But one thing that becomes clear as we, as we look at that generation of Moses was that their hearts did not belong to God. They were a faithless people. They hated God's in, God in their heart. They held Him in contempt. They refused to obey Him and trust Him. Now, there were a few points where they said, Oh, you're right, Lord, we were wrong and we never want to do that again. But it took like five seconds and they were back at it again. And, and that's why Psalm 95, it says, they always go astray in their heart. And so what we learn about that faithless generation is their hearts did not belong to God, though God continually poured out His blessing and His faithful provision for them and His protection for them. They saw the hand of God at work in their midst, they experienced uh, what it was like to have God provide for them and protect them and lead them. 
uh, watch over them and even be with them as he made his presence known uh, to them in a, in a very visible way, and yet they still had hard hearts towards God. So I would make the argument here that those who have been enlightened are those who have walked in the Christian community. They have tasted of, of all the good things that God is doing and the power of God at work in the Christian community, in the Christian community yet have not quite stepped over the line of repenting and placing their faith in Christ. And I interpret it that way because of this reference that keeps going back to the people of Israel, uh, that generation of Moses, that tasted of all the good things of God, as we're going to get into further here, yet still rebelled against him in their hearts. So, those who have once been enlightened, those who have come to hear the gospel, those who have heard the word of God, those who have walked among those who have received the word of God and received Christ as Lord and Savior. They've seen the transformation that occurs in the folks around them. They've even benefited from being around those people and tasted of the blessing of God through those people as God's blessing is poured out among believers and his power is at work among them. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You see that, that um, for me, that context, it, keep, it, it sets up this comparison back to uh, that faithless generation who had contempt for God, though he had shown them so much of who he is, his love, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, and his power. So the other thing then we want to look at here is um, that touches on uh, the those who have once been enlightened, but um, there's the word there, uh, that phrase, fallen away. And this can create some, I think, some anxiety um, for believers. Because, I mean, as much as we love Christ in our heart, and as much as we, we uh, have, have trusted him, we still, we still sin. I mean, we still get angry unjustly. Uh, we still say things and do things that hurt the people we love. Uh, we still judge others, putting ourselves in the seat of, of God. Uh, we still have all these ugly tendencies in us. And we still, uh, at times, we still give in to those temptations. So what does that mean? Does that mean we've fallen away and now we're a hopeless case? That, that, that we can move in and out of this gift of salvation, that if we, if we don't do a good job of being a Christian today, that maybe we're not saved now, and hopefully we'll do a better job tomorrow so that we can be saved again? Is this, is this what's being touched on? I, I don't think so. Because again, we look back at the faithless generation. What was the theme of the faithless generation? They had unbelieving hearts that were set against God. It wasn't that they trusted God like think of King David. Did David, was he perfect? Oh my goodness. I mean, it, really and truly, if, if, if King David wanted to be uh, an elder of any church, he would be declined. And for good reason. Right? But yet we look at King David and we go, and even the scriptures proclaim this is a man after God's own heart. So something is going on that's different between the faithless generation and just someone who has given in to temptation to sin. There's a difference there. And so what we're talking about here with fallen away is those who have made a really a decision in their heart against God. So we're not talking about someone who has just merely uh, fallen into some temptation or temptation to sin. In fact, there are other passages that talk 
in Scripture that talk about restoring those people to Christ and the, and the fellowship of believers when they have uh, fallen into temptation to sin. And in those passages, it's not talking about them losing their salvation. It's talking about them being restored to fellowship to Christ and to God's people. But this is different. This is hard language. This says it's impossible for them to be restored. It's impossible for them uh, to come to repentance, to receive the gift of God. Why is it impossible? It's impossible because they've taken the position of that faithless generation of Moses and they have held God in contempt though they have tasted and seen the goodness of God. And so what, well that hits then on this word uh, impossible. In fact, if you want to look, look back with me there to uh, chapter 3, verse 16. There's this comment about, about that generation that we've been referring to that Hebrews uh, contrasts with. It says, for, those, or for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because they fell into temptation to sin? No. Because of unbelief, they refused God in their heart. And so we get to this now impossibility there is all kinds of uh, scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that give us encouragement for ways that we can help restore believers who have fallen into temptation to sin and how to restore them to fellowship with God and fellowship with the believers. But here it says, it's impossible. What can be done for someone who, especially from a human perspective, From our perspective, what more can we do for someone if they have actually seen God's hand at work, they have seen lives transformed by the power of God, they have seen God's miraculous intervention in the lives of His people, they have seen God's faithful provision, they have have, uh, seen the way God blesses His children, and yet... um, they have turned their back on God. What more can you offer them for, for, that would turn them to Christ? What else do you add to that that convinces them? Certainly not our apologetics. Is there any argument we can make for someone who has tasted that the goodness of God and turned their back on Him that, that is somehow going to be the magic bullet that's where they go, oh, I never thought of that. Barring an act of Almighty God Himself, this person is hopelessly lost in their unbelief. Our arguments are not going to be enough to win them over if they have seen God's hand at work firsthand and still rebelled against Him. Matthew chapter 12, uh, turn there with me real quick. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. So Jesus is speaking here to um, the religious folks, that is, the ones who, who had the Scriptures, who knew the Scriptures, or um, knew the words of the Scriptures anyways, though they failed to understand them, comprehend them, as Jesus makes clear. So these are um, the folks that, that should be the folks who understand the things of God. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Wow. I mean, if you go back and read Jonah, you're like, whoa. (laughs) Talking to the religious leaders here that it's going to be Nineveh that rises up and judges them. Um, 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, Jesus. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So when Jesus arrives, it's interesting that the way he speaks of the religious leaders is very similar of how God speaks of the faithless generation of Moses. You have, no, you have had my word. You have had access to me, and yet your hearts are far from me. You hate me and hold me in contempt in your heart. And they ask for a sign and, and from Jesus himself, and he says a sign's not going to be given other than the one at his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. Because there's no sign that can be given to sway a heart that is that set against God. Barring an act of God, a miraculous intervention, it's not going to happen. In Acts chapter 7, with Stephen, as, as right before Stephen is stoned, he goes through the history of Israel And he's doing this with the religious leaders who I'm sure are like, who are you to tell us? Right? And and then this is what he says right before they stone him. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, which would have been highly offensive, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Again, a similar accusation from Stephen that the Holy Spirit has has come to you and you've rejected him. God has made his son known to you and you have rejected him. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, what we have here is a focus on those who would, whom God has, has given the invitation to receive the gift of salvation. He has shown them um, his goodness. He has shown them his faithfulness. And yet still, they are unwilling to believe in him, trust in him, submit to him. Now, I want to venture off just slightly, I said this passage is not about, I don't believe it to be about eternal security, but about a call for believers as we get on here, a call for believers to now walk in the faith that you have come into. In other words, sort of like prove your faith by staying uh, in it, by persevering in Christ, by holding on to the hope that he's given you. And so that is the larger call. There's a warning and a calling. A warning for those who are a heart of heart and a calling for those who have received Christ to persevere in such a way that it proves that they belong to him. Not that they earn their salvation by the way they live, but rather that they prove that they belong to him by the way they live. That they are fleshing out um, in the way that they in the way that they live, what God has done on the inside by transforming them through Christ. But I do want to touch on this matter of eternal security because I know that this is an issue that many wrestle with, and that is that that nagging question that somehow that I've slipped up today or I slipped up yesterday. Does that mean that now I'm not a Christian anymore? that now I'm not God's child anymore, that now I'm going to be excluded from the promise of of eternal life because of what I did back here. Um, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 for this. This is a passage that I, I love in regards to this question. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is just so rich. I mean, it's like you've never had a cheesecake this rich. This is like one that you take a nibble on and you're like, I need a glass of milk. 
So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There are several things in there that really put down the screws on this question of can our salvation just be taken from us? One is, it says that having been predestined, in other words, God chose to save you. Now, we are never told that God chooses any, to save anyone because they're such wonderful people. Right? No, we're, we're told according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So for reasons that God has, his purposes, he chose to save you. The other thing is here, it says that when you believed, when you received the, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This seal is, a, uh, it is, it is a, uh, an echoing of, of when um, uh, authorities would have some kind of a seal that they would put on something that would essentially, uh, technically, you could open it, but you wouldn't. <laughs> it, it, it said there's an authority here that presides over this seal that anyone who tampers with this is, is going to have to deal with the authority. Well, this is even more than that. This, so you have the highest authority anywhere putting a seal on you, but it's not just saying, hey, don't tamper with this. It is impossible to tamper with it. The seal of God cannot be broken. So this seal of the Holy Spirit is put on the believer. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. There's three things in here that all hit on this being a done deal. When you became a child of God through faith in Christ, your sins uh, uh, forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ and the righteousness of Christ applied to you because you trust in Him and have repented of, of you, you've repented and turned to Him in faith, um, you now stand before God with the righteousness of Christ Period. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, our down payment that God is going to make good on that promise. Romans chapter 8 talks about um, us being made righteous through Christ and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, wait, what if I... What if I sin again? Like, well, Paul deals with this actually in Romans. He actually deals with this idea of what if I, what if I sin and how we handle the grace of God. Um, you know, like, well, obviously we don't take the position that, well, because technically maybe you can sin and still keep your salvation, that that means go for it. Right? Paul deals with that in Romans. But rather that we, because we have such great, um, such great, such thankfulness for all that Christ has done, our, our pursuit is to live now worthy of it. But he says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You see that? That the righteous requirement of the law, God's law by which we are going to be held accountable, it is fulfilled. But not because we're doing a great job at it but because the Spirit of God is at work in us and the righteousness of Christ has been applied to us. 
First John chapter five, um, the Apostle John, as he writes to to those he loves so much here, you just see John's affection oozing uh, through every part of this this book, uh, his letter here. First John chapter five verse ten, he says. Um, Verse 10 through 13. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God uh, does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope you have eternal life. Not that you may be reasonably assured that you probably maybe could have at the end of your days eternal life. But that you may know that you have eternal life. That you, Christian, believer in Christ, do not need to walk around in your days being anxious that you are not going to make it in. Because if you were going to make it in based on how righteous you are, you would not make it in for sure. You are a child of God not because you fulfill the righteous requirements of the law yourself, but because Christ has done that for you. And God is not like, like some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, just easily volatile person that's like, one day I love you, the next day I, I don't know you. Like, you messed up yesterday. But you are a child of God through faith in Christ. He loves his son. His son has died for you. And he has embraced you because of his son, not because of you. He loves you and sent his son to die for you. And now holds you tightly as a child of God because of what his son has done for you. So now the call of scripture and the call of Hebrews is now so live worthy of it. Live worthy of the gift that God has given you. Live worthy of the name child of God. Live grateful to Him all your days. So wrapping up that last part of Hebrews, and this must have been a comfort to, to uh, them to hear. There's a, it says, talks about the, the, uh, um, the land and that, that image uh, that reminds us of, of the parable that Jesus told about the parable of the soils and the seeds being planted and some of them producing fruit and some of them not. Um, Then verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, he's saying, your lives tell the story of your faith in him. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise which is a nod to what's coming in Hebrews chapter 11 where we have a whole list of people who have lived faithfully before God. So believers... I'm going to I want to leave you with a couple things here. If you love Christ and you are thankful for all that he has done for you, rest in the knowledge that what he has done for you is done. It is done. His sacrifice was sufficient for you and he has made you a child of God. End of story. But you who resist Christ in your heart, though perhaps you've gone to church for many years, perhaps you love hanging out with Christians, um, 
Perhaps it fills you up to serve other people. Makes you feel really good. And that's awesome. But yet you have resisted submitting to his lordship in your life. You have, you have resisted him in your heart. The word of God says that you still stand before the judgment of God until you submit to him in faith to receive his gift for yourself rather than living it out vicariously through others. You turn to God to receive his gift. This matters for eternity. But for you who have, as John would say, um, children of God, And in his gospel says that to those who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. I want to leave some words of Jesus with you. In John chapter 10, verse 24. He says, um, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? as if that was what Jesus was doing. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And we're like, what? Wait a minute. This is like John chapter 10. Did you not, did I miss something in the first previous chapters? Tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep Hear my voice, and I know them, and they, know, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a pretty great promise. But there's more. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christian, you who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, God's promise is secure. You screw up? Listen, God's grace has been sufficient for you at the cross. Now as a believer... We don't live in that spot where we keep on sinning because we are so grateful for Him and what He's done for us and we love Him. And that is the evidence that we belong to Him. That we don't continue in sin. That's what First John he gets at. That we don't continue in that habit of sin and that's part of the evidence that we belong to Him. That we keep turning to Him. To grow in Him. But you belong to him period and he's not going to renege on that but if you've resisted him in your heart know that revelation 20 speaks loudly to what is coming and that is that all those whose names are not found written in the lamb's book of life are going to be cast into the lake of fire that you will receive god's eternal judgment But believer, you have a Father who loves you and is not going to let go of you. You have a Savior who loves you and is not going to let go of you. You are doubly insulated by two that cannot be penetrated. You're good. You're good. Don't worry today or tomorrow if it's going to be snatched away because you have a promise from Jesus and the Father that says it can't be done. You belong to Him. Now persevere in that. And prove it out and show that you belong to him. Father, we thank you so much. Well, church, um, I just want to leave you with the same word that, uh, that here the Holy Spirit does in Hebrews uh, to the believers as they received these words. Because I, um, I really do think the same way of you all. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved... We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who have through faith and patience uh, inherit the promises. Amen.